Hey, everyone. I see some people back that I have missed, and it is a good day to be in the house of the Lord. Quote, but I'm not going to let it change me. How many times have you heard somebody say that? I'll give you my top five instances where people say that. Number, coming in at number five, um, becoming rich, that's classic, right? But I'm not going to let it change me. That didn't even work for the Beverly Hillbillies, you know? I'm, I mean, it's not, not going not to probably work for you. How about marriage? How many young men? Now, I think women know better, but men go into it's like, yeah, we're still going to hang out and do all the same old stuff and get online and play the video games together and everything. <laughs> I actually thought that when I went into marriage. Big mistake. Big, big mistake. Never, never, they, no, they did not. Uh, well, I just, I just thought me and Og, you know, would probably, you know, uh, no. Uh, number three, becoming a parent. Yeah, not going to let it change me. <laughs> After about two weeks of just not sleeping, you're going to be like, I think this is changing everything. So get ready, Austin, you guys uh, get ready for that. Number two, becoming uh, a member of the military. Yeah, they're going to take and they're going to break you. And remake you so that give up on the idea uh, that you're not going to change. But I think number one is coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Nobody says, but I'm not going to let it change me when they come to Christ, right? But how many think that? How many people come to faith in Christ? Or they, they hear the message of the gospel and they respond and, and somewhere... They hold back the idea that I'm not going to really, though, let it change me. I'm still going to be the same person and still love the same things I love. But the scripture says when you come to Christ, you die to your former self. You, you die to your old life. You're buried with him in baptism. You're raised to new life in him. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old has passed away. And that's the message that I'm, it's a very simple message that I'm going to preach today, but it's one that some people probably still don't get. And that is, expect Jesus to disrupt your expectations. See what I did there? Disrupt, yeah, expect him to disrupt your expectation. Acts chapter 3, uh, we've passed through Pentecost in chapter 2. And then the preaching of Peter, very lengthy sermon there that he preaches, and 3,000 people are added to their number. The church is born. And then we have that, uh, that incredible passage we looked at last time where you have the early church in just that idyllic, halcyon period where everything is groovy and they are authentically living out their faith and they even have the favor of the people for a little while. A little while, but you know, this is headed toward disruption. This is on its way, so we're going to look at these ways in which Jesus disrupts. First of all, he disrupts old cultural patterns. Peter and John are on their way to the temple, which would be their habit as good Jewish men. It's three in the afternoon, um, as we are told there. And I, you know, they just they kept doing in one sense, the things that they had always done. At this point, Christianity is not looked upon as some completely different religion. These are Jewish men who have come to trust in Christ, and they are still very, very Jewish. Did they think that this would continue? That's an opinion question. You can just 
answer it in your own mind. Do you think that they thought that the outward form was going to continue the way it always had? I mean, at this juncture, they're still in the temple. From everything that we can tell, they remained in that, as long as there was a church in Jerusalem, um, even after the dispersion and everything, when they go out from there, the, the, those that were in Jerusalem continued to go to the temple. We know they continued to go uh, to the synagogue. These are the forms that they were used to. And then eventually, of course, they would have been uh, removed for, from there. At this point, those outward external forms of religion and their culture that they had come to know was still their comfort zone, wasn't it? It was everything they knew. It was what they'd had from their birth, from their heritage, from their culture, their people, their language, their book, their customs, everything about their approach to God, even the locality of it, everything was as it had always been. That was their assumption, and Jesus is about to disrupt that. The coming of the kingdom of God of the messianic age was not going to continue forever meeting in the temple. The day, that, that day is going to end in 70 AD. But even today, today meaning the day we're at here in the text, things begin to really start to disrupt. When you come to faith in Christ and you become his follower, unless you're from a Christian background, and I would say even people that grew up with a Christian background and maybe a very godly Christian home, coming to Christ is still going to have a profound impact. Now, it's not going to necessarily change the culture of, to which you're accustomed. But um, anything excluding that, man, you come to Christ, you're going to have to learn a whole different culture. It, it's going to break patterns. Even if you come from an upper middle class uh, segment of society, let's say. Um, I've known people in my ministry that were upwardly mobile, let's put it that way, doing quite well for themselves, upper middle class and, uh, and I've had people with tears tell me, you know what, ever since I came to Christ, everything is different. And not necessarily in a good way, like none of, nobody wants to hang out with me anymore. Nobody wants to confide in me. Nobody wants to invite me to their parties. That's a first world problem. You know what happens if you become a Christian in India? Yeah, you get beaten up. Have you read these things lately about what's going on? The, the Hindu uh, extremism in India is, is really rampant and red hot right now. You come to Christ, you're probably going to become a, a prisoner in your own home. You go out, people beat you, harangue you. But whatever your background, you come to Christ, it will mean a disruption of old cultural patterns that you, you're used to. You're going to have to learn a whole new culture. Secondly, and this is probably where we're going to spend the most time in the sermon, well it is, um, Jesus disrupts our definition of fortune. Disrupts our definition of fortune. Peter and John are approaching the temple courts. Uh, they're going to pass um, the temple gate, which is called beautiful. You know, you've you got all the temple gates memorized, right? You, did, you, did you learn all those? I'm, I'm just joshing you, I have no idea. You know what? Commentators don't even know where this gate was. They're assuming it was a beautiful gate. <laughs> Must have been one of the best because it was designated good. Look, look at what it says. It says, And a man lame from birth was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him as did John and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. So this man, let's just catch, catch you up here in case you're 
tracking with difficulty. Um, he's a guy, probably, what, maybe 20s, 30s. He's a man at any rate. And for decades of his life, his entire life, he has not had functioning feet and ankles. Can you imagine that for just a moment? And we've all seen people that were very, very severely crippled and, uh, and, and didn't have the use of, of, of hands or, or feet. And uh, this would have been atrophy to the extreme. I mean, you want to talk about atrophy. These have never borne his weight. He has never been able to walk. He has apparently some friends or family who maybe for a cut of the action were willing to take him daily to this place near the temple in, in front of that gate. They put him there in that high traffic area. If you have to be lame, this is a great place to be lame, isn't it? I'm not saying the man was getting rich, but I think he was doing okay for himself. As, as beggars go, what better place, if you're a Jewish lame person, what better place in all of Israel could there be but right smack dab in front of the temple? The Jewish people did consider this an important part of their religion, that is giving alms to the poor. Add to that the fact that when you're going up to the temple, sometimes you're just very pious and you're there for the prayer time, so you're probably feeling like a cut above everyone, but a lot of times, why were they going to the temple? To bring a sacrifice for their sins. Man, those people were easy marks. They already know they're supposed to please God by giving to the poor, and now they feel guilty on top of it, and you're walking into the temple to go do that, and there's some guy with a cup out there and, uh, and really messed up feet. I bet he did quite well for himself in that sense. I love how uh, Luke describes the eye contact part here. Did you notice that? He really goes into detail about the eye contact, and, and uh, it, it totally goes against how things would normally run. Think about this for a minute. Um, when you go to a mall, let's say it's around Christmas time, you know when they get those little shacks in the middle of the mall? It's like where all the gypsies arrive at the mall or something, and they're, and they're selling nothing against gypsies. Um, the Roma people, right? Roma people. Uh, but, but you got all these people hawking things in, in the middle of the mall, and they got some lotion, and they're out there with a pump bottle, and they're wanting to give you a little bit of a sample of, of, of that lotion. How many make eye contact with that guy? Don't you have your children close to you? You're like hugging the side of the mall, and you're like, keep your eyes forward. Don't look at him. Don't look at him. Why? Because you don't want to spend 10 minutes during the height of the Christmas season hearing about some lotion that you're not going to spend 40 bucks on. And I think it's the same thing here. My bet would be this man probably on a day-in, day-out basis got very little eye contact. Even the people that gave alms, I would bet, I would wager, given the fact that they end up having to tell him to look at them, um, I bet most of the time he didn't look at them, and I bet most of the time they didn't really spend much time gazing at him. I bet it would have been a quick, you know, throw some coins in there and, and be on your way. Can you imagine that moment then when Peter and John look at him, they look at him, and then they say to him, look at us. That must have been a weird moment in and of itself. What? I'm supposed to look at you? That's not what we do. And he looks up and he sees there, you know, Peter and John. And, and you just got this, this, uh, this love. 
this love and this mercy, and I think just the power of the Holy Spirit on them, it would have been an amazing moment, and this guy is thinking, man, this is my lucky day, because these guys, they look like they are just primed and ready to give me some cash. Literally says, and he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something. What did he expect to receive? What do you think he expected to receive? A beat down? No, no. Uh, an insult? No. Healing? No. <laughs> he was expecting money. What else would he have expected? I mean, think about it. Think about his definition of good fortune. His, his concept of good fortune at that point. This is not like the lame man that they, that they had near the, um, the pool of Beth, um, Bethesda. You know that guy? Now, he was expecting to be healed, but he just couldn't get into the water quick enough when the angel would stir the water. You remember that? What about blind Bartimaeus? He was a beggar. Normally, day in, day out, he expected money, but Jesus is coming through Jericho, and he knows who Jesus is, and so he cries out. Even then, Jesus says, okay, tell me what you want, because you could be asking for money. Could be asking for healing. But this guy, this guy has no concept that there's a healing even possible. It's, it's silver and gold. That is all that he hopes for. And so what comes out of Peter's mouth, most of it, it must have been incomprehensible and discouraging. It says, but Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Think about this. This lame man's universe. In that universe, there would have been certain givens. Are you familiar with the term givens? So those things in life which are predictable, those things which you would say are possible, those are givens, and then everything else would be an impossibility. He was regarded by those around as a sinner who was bearing the penalty of his sin. That's how the Jewish people looked at people who were lame. They were, they were bearing the, the, the cost of their own sin or the sin of their parents. He wasn't used to a lot of, of eye contact. He probably didn't have very many conversations with these good people who got to go into the temple. You see, here's the, it doesn't come out in the text, but do you realize he never set foot in the temple? He had never set foot in the temple. That was as far as he ever got. He got right to the gate. But lame people were not allowed into the temple. He had never so much as passed the threshold. So pity and mercy and possibly on a good day some money, that would have been his expectation. And the more sinful the person was walking by, the better his odds were that he was going to get something but what he expected was money. And he hears Peter say, you're not gonna get anything from me in terms of silver and gold. Nothing like that. What you define as good, what you expect for fortune, that you're not going to get. But then as if it's spoken in a foreign language, I mean, it had to land on his ears in such a very, very strange way. He says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. A lot of stuff had to be happening really, really fast. You know, you think about the cartoons with the, the cogs in the brain, you know, spinning. 
had to be a lot of stuff happening all at once in the name of Jesus Christ. Wait, who's Jesus Christ? Oh yeah, that's right, he was that healer guy, but wait, so he was put to death. Oh, but then there's those people that have been meeting and, and, and they're from Galilee and, and all over the world and everybody thinks you know, favorably about them and these people look like they're from Galilee and they're saying in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. It's, it's, it's all of that happening. It's kinda of like that moment you step backward off a ladder to, to put your foot on the floor but you're actually two steps up from the floor instead of one, and everything's fine for a split moment, and then you pass the point at which the floor was supposed to be there? A lot goes through your mind in that, in that moment, doesn't it? Really, really, and I think all of that is, is happening with him before uh, he can even imagine it, you know? He's being told to, to get up, and Peter, that big old, you know, brash fisherman, Peter's still Peter, right? He's just a Holy Spirit-filled Peter, and he's a big old fisherman who's used to pulling these nets heavy with fish up out of the ocean, out of the, out of the sea, is reaching down and grabbing you by the hand and jerking you up. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. How? How? How do feet and ankles that have never in decades ever born your weight presumably ankles that have never even done that right you know that motion that very complex motion talk to a podiatrist sometimes there's a lot going on in your feet right and ankles never done that and all at once in that moment he is healed as an aside uh, and, but it's an important one just before we go further this is this is the type of miracle that you expect through the hands of the apostles. The apostles were unique, and I know I've beat this drum a lot, and I'll continue to do so. I just want us to understand. It's important that we recognize that for the apostles, um, there were authenticating miracles that had to happen that, that set them apart, and, and those in close association with the apostles during that apostolic period. And what you see, the quality of an apostolic miracle is that the apostle commands it and it happens and it happens completely and it happens instantaneously. Okay? So if you hear anyone going around saying that they're an apostle and their proof is that they you know, prayed for somebody and they got over their cold, um, that's not an apostolic miracle. I just want to make that clear because if somebody goes around spouting off that they're an apostle, that's, that's, that's not the case. Now, God is still God. God can still do whatever God wants to. God still answers prayer. People still get well um, and, and miraculously so and, uh, and yet this, this, is, this is uniquely the province of apostles. Okay, according to the text, here's the order of what happens. First, there's a command to rise. Second, Peter grabs him and hoists him to his feet, and as he is lifting him up, the man leaps up to his feet because his feet and ankles are immediately made whole. And then, what's the first thing he does? He does not, I want to say, go to Disney World. That is not, layman, what is the first thing you're going to do? What's the first thing he's going to do? What would you do? You've just been made whole, your, your ankles, your feet, you can, you can walk, you can run. What, where, where are you going to go? Go to your girlfriend's house, right? Maybe he had a girlfriend. You don't know that. He might have been a very attractive man. Um, 
had a winsome personality. I don't know. I mean, go home, tell your mom and dad if they're still alive. Go, go find your brothers and sisters. Go tell the people that have been carrying you there every day, hey, I don't need you anymore. Where would you go? Where does he go? He wants to be in the company of God's people. I love his heart. He wants to be there where Yahweh is worshiped. He's never been able to set foot in there, and now he is able, and that's where he wants to be, and he wants to be in the company of the apostles. Acts 3.8, and leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. His whole world, his whole outlook, all of his assumptions have been completely transformed. All of his expectations have been disrupted. Peter is, is, is not the one who healed him. He has been healed by Jesus Christ, through the name of Jesus Christ, by, by the Holy Spirit's work through Peter, but it is, it is that name of Jesus Christ. One way or another, compare where he's at now, that complete wholeness, that restoration, that joy that you see, compare that to his previous definition of fortune. Which one of those would you rather experience? Jesus has changed that. When you come to the gospel of the kingdom, if you come to it and you, you turn and you put your faith in Jesus Christ, please don't expect your definition of fortune to remain as it has been. Because up till now, what is it you've wanted? What, what have you longed for? I can't tell you. I mean, I can, I can guess. I mean, sometimes it's cars and vacations, a nice house, property, full IRAs, or the object of your sexual fantasies and your romantic dreams. But I want, I want to say to you today that Jesus is so much better than those things that you had ever hoped for. It's wholeness, it's restoration, it's redemption, it's reconciliation. It is fellowship with God and with God's people. It is eternal life. Jesus disrupts our idea. He changed, and, and by that I mean he changes our definition of what is good. Once in a while, and, and, and too often, but I see it from time to time. I see believers, so-called, people who once professed faith in Jesus Christ who take the opposite direction. They've made a profession of faith. They've, they've, they've claimed to know Christ and, and the joy of the Christian life. But then, for whatever reason, they, set, they start setting their heart on their old definition of fortune. You know, the sound, the sound of those coins falling into that jar. Man, that must have been a great feeling, don't you think? I mean, it'd be like fishing, and you see the bobber start to go down, right? Like, yeah, you get that little flutter. Ooh. What's it going to be? Oh, it's copper. Silver next time, right? And, and for whatever reason, there are people that, that, that have made that profession of faith, and all at once they derail because their heart goes after something in this world and they know it's wrong, and they know it doesn't fit with their walk with Christ, but, but by golly, they're gonna go, and they're gonna grab for the shiny thing that they think will make them happy. And it's a lie. It's a lie. Do you know what that's like? Let me give you the alternate ending of this story. 
You ever, you ever get a DVD and it's got an alternate ending that they filmed? They decide to go with whatever they went with, but then you can watch the alternate ending of the movie? All right, okay. Well, that happens sometimes in these DVDs in the extended version. Anyway, so here's the alternate version of this story. The lame man, he, he's walking, he's leaping, he's having a good time, he's bumping elbows, he's getting a few selfies. Um, and then after a couple days of this, he thinks, you know what? I don't have a job. He goes for a couple days, tries to beg. It doesn't work. People walk by, they go, you're fine. You don't need any money. You're, go get a job, deadbeat. So in this alternate ending, he eventually goes and grabs a small sledgehammer and beats his ankles and his feet to a pulp so that he can go back to his old life. I mean, that's what it's like. That's what it's like when a person who professes faith in Christ, who's had all of that disruption of their values when they suddenly turn back and go for the things of this world. It says, and all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. The miracle is a particularly conspicuous miracle. In fact, one could argue that this miracle may have been, in one sense, the greatest miracle in the New Testament up to that point. I mean, in one sense, not comparable to, for instance, the raising of Lazarus, but it's the conspicuous nature of this miracle that, that Christ did through Peter. Because everybody that had ever gone to the temple knew this guy. Can you imagine that? You go, every time you go to the temple, you're going to the prayer time if you're really, really pious or if once a year you're going there for the Day of Atonement or whatever it might be, but every time you've ever gone there next to the beautiful gate, there's that same guy. He's been lame his whole life. He's been begging for decades. And this guy is running through the temple. Everybody's looking at him going, oh my, oh my, oh, what, what would you do? There's the lame guy. He's running. He's leaping, he's, he's shouting, he's like a madman, hallelujah, and praise he's like, you know, George Bailey running through Bedford Falls, uh, you know, I mean, he's, he's, he's just at that, just, it's, how would you begin to explain that? And that is the disruption that they're facing. Jesus disrupts unbelief. Jesus disrupts unbelief. Those people in the temple were the same people that we read about in chapter 2, verse 47, um, that showed favor toward the early church. But this miracle, and, and, and this is where I see this moving. When you read the book of Acts, you can see this kind of progression. This is going to push people absolutely to, it's just going to push them absolutely to the far boundary. I mean, you think about it. Um, the, you can keep Jesus at arm's length for a time. You can be that sort of um, unbeliever that, that just successfully always manages to stay away from, from and avoid the conversation, that keeps themselves numb by the things they do, and just, just, you just never get near it. But then there can be that moment where you finally hear the gospel explained or you hear a, a Christian give their testimony, or you read something on Facebook or wherever, and, and all at once the truth of, of Christ starts to, to hit you. And at that moment, you need to make a decision, don't you? 
that's when it really gets real. Think about King Agrippa. You remember him? Paul appeared before King Agrippa and had to give his defense, and Agrippa's like, oh, man, Paul, back off, dude. Wait, man, ah. Are you going to make me a Christian overnight? Is that what you're planning on doing here? Because that shouldn't be how it works. And he ends up pushing Paul back. He, he keeps him at arm's length. He doesn't want to hear it. Think about Thomas. You remember that moment for Thomas? Thomas had been in doubt. All the other guys had seen Jesus, and they're telling him, and he's like, I'm not so sure. It sounds too good to be true. It really does. I mean, until I see him, and actually put my finger in the nails and put my hand in the side where they thrust through that side with the spear. Until I do that, I'm not gonna, I, I'm not gonna believe. And then Jesus is like, poof, there. And he falls on his face, my Lord and my God. Next week we're gonna look at the passage, uh, the part of the, mess, the passage where uh, Peter preaches to this audience, which is totally prepared for his message. But for today, I want you to understand that Jesus does not play fair. We can be lost and deaf and dumb and blind and blissfully unaware, content in our sin, hellbound, insensitive to the gospel. And he can come along and he can disrupt our unbelief. He can fill our hearts with fear. He can push us to the brink. Conversion isn't always that, you know, you've heard the term gentle persuasion. Gentle persuasion. Sometimes it's a blinding light and a big old two by four that just knocks you to the ground. Um, sometimes we are happily minding our own business thinking life is just life as I've always known it and then some freak of a lame guy goes running past you leaping and praising God what do you do with that what do you do with that one of the great examples of this was C.S. Lewis you know C.S. Lewis did not want to be converted he was happy to be an atheist he was a prominent uh, writer and, uh, and professor, and he was an atheist, and he was known for, for his atheism, but bit by bit, intellectually, his atheism just took one hit after another, after another, after another, until finally just beaten down. He said, you know, he, he came to faith like a prisoner being led away in chains. He didn't want it. He didn't want to be converted, but, but Christ just overwhelmed him. I think a mistake that we hear Christians often say, um, here, I'll quote it verbatim. Well, one thing God won't do, do you know where this is going? One thing God won't do, he won't force himself upon you. Really? Okay. Where's the where's this passage for that exactly? Where? Where, where's the go-to where it says, uh, God so loved the world that he didn't force anyone? Don't know that passage. But I do remember how Saul came to faith. God just knocked him to the ground. Now what are you going to do with it? And all those Jewish people having that lame man run past him. Hey, guys. <laughs> look. Jesus, right? Jesus. I don't think that's plain fair. That's, that, is, that is just a complete and total disruption of your unbelief. If you are not a believer today, I pray that God would hit you in the face that way. That didn't sound nice at all, did it? 
but in a good way. That, 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 this, that you will be confronted with the truth, however that has to happen, and it can come a million different ways, but I just pray that that will happen for you. And if you count yourself a believer today, can I remind you of a truth that you should know by now? And that is the idea that you can, um, you can take Jesus and be essentially unchanged, that that notion is truly silly and immature and deleterious to your whole life. Jesus does not come along as an add-on to the world. We can't just love the world and then take a little Jesus. Jesus isn't an add-on to the world. Jesus is a destroyer of worlds. He is a disruptor of the world. He will disrupt, disrupt your old cultural patterns. He will disrupt your very definition of what fortune is. The person who is truly converted, who truly comes to faith in Christ will reach that point. And it may come at the moment of conversion. And for some of us, it just takes a long time to beat stupid out of us. But we will just, there will be that moment where we suddenly realize the things that we'd set our heart on aren't worth it. And that only he is really worth it. That he is that treasure. Perhaps right now in your life, Christ is disrupting old patterns and concepts and you're fighting it. And you're fighting that. May I just say to you today, if that's where you're at, that uncomfortable moment between watching the lame guy run past you and actually giving in to Jesus, that you cannot be happy as long as you resist him. As long as you resist that inevitable, you will be unhappy. You'll be, you'll be miserable. Do you know what Jesus said to Saul when, when he knocked him down on the road to Damascus? Other than, why do you persecute me? Do you, you remember the other thing he said? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. What's a goad? You've been goaded before. I've probably goaded you before, but what is... What is that? Well, that was, you know, when, when they'd have a team of oxen, they'd have the, those, those sharp, like, stick-like things pointed toward them so that if they tried to get off track, they'd stick themselves. And that was to keep them going the direction they were supposed to be going. But, but for however long Saul had been just going against Jesus at every turn, he didn't want to. He didn't want to come to Christ. He didn't want to believe. He kept seeing all this evidence, and he kept trying to shut himself off for that. And Jesus is like, dude, it's not easy to, to go the wrong direction, is it? When you're pushing and pulling against me, that's hard. And I would just pray for you today that you would see the glory and the fortune of knowing Jesus Christ as your Savior. So stop fighting him. Stop fighting him. Submit. Come to him. Let that disruption be complete in you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, uh, we see that, that you change our definitions or that you disrupt the world as it is. It's, it's, uh, it's that new wine in old wineskins and we, we, we have to be changed by it. And I pray that you would fulfill that work in us, your people. Lord, that, that we would make that, make that turn finally where we really do see the fortune and define it differently as being eternal life with you forever and not the things of this world. Help, help us, Lord, 
make, make those things to seem less, less glorious to us and your glory to be that much greater. And I pray, Lord, that you'd work in somebody's life right now and turn them to see your value, to see the treasure that is you, that they would want to go and sell all they have that they might take possession of that, that they might lay aside, turn from their old ways and turn to you and have you disrupt their, their eternity. And I ask that in your name, amen.